I don't know if you've ever had one of those moments. Maybe when you got up this morning. You're standing there in front of the mirror. And for some reason, this time, instead of just seeing a groggy figure with messed up hair, or for that matter, maybe somebody who's all nicely groomed and ready to take on the day, standing there looking back at you, this time, aside from all of that stuff, you actually make eye contact. And you find yourself wondering, so just who are you, really, anyway? Now, of course, on one level, if you really don't have any clue at all who you're looking at, then we're talking about something quite different than the point I want to make this morning. And somebody probably needs to make a phone call. But on another level, our need to be able to answer that question, you know, to know who we really are, what it is that defines us, what it is that gives us our sense of identity. Even though we might not always think about it quite that way, it's still something that not only matters to us a lot, but it's also something that we can feel pretty strongly about at times, which shows up in lots of different ways, not all of which are always very helpful or constructive. And that's pretty true, whether it's who we're about, or we're talking about who we are personally, or whether it's who we are as a group, like a family or a team or a nation, maybe even a denomination that we're talking about. At the school where Lael teaches, for example, if you uh, happen to be there and you hear raised voices in the corridors and the phrase, yo mama, being used, which if you don't already know is kind of a derogatory sort of term that uh, doesn't reflect well on your family, there is a good chance you're going to have a fight on your hands. And if cooler heads don't prevail real quickly, you can have some problems. Strong feelings get stirred. And as anybody who has internet access knows, this same kind of dynamic can play out in lots of other ways as well. If people think that who they are or something they strongly identify with or care about is being threatened or questioned or insulted or just somehow not quite the way they think it should be stated, apparently uh, things like this matter to people. Unfortunately, Sometimes, in our desire to defend the truth of who we are, individually or as a group, we get focused on the wrong stuff, or even on otherwise good things, but in ways that are not always very helpful to us. I don't know, maybe it's because we live in such an anxiety-driven culture that seems full of all kinds of shiny surfaces, you know, that we're constantly seeing reflections of ourselves in that we become so hyper-conscious about how we look or how we're doing or how well we perform, some truth or defining characteristic that makes us as an individual or a group or a movement that we belong to or identify with somehow unique and special, that we sometimes don't catch the extent to which those reflections can get distorted or how certain things about us can take on shapes and forms that are out of proportion with who we really are, or at least out of proportion with who we're called to be. 
But there's something different that happens when we find ourselves standing in front of a good mirror and we find ourselves looking into the eyes of the person looking back at us. And we find ourselves wondering if who we really are really is about all of that. Or if maybe there's something that goes deeper that might perhaps find its roots as much, maybe even more, in what we share as in whatever it may be that makes us unique. Something that may have less to do with all the reflected stuff that we see and maybe more to do with the kind of people that we are and how we relate to God and each other. Something that has to do with the difference between knowing all about something or someone and actually really knowing them. You know, it was interesting to me to run across in, in the first chapter of the, of the little letter of James in the New Testament, and verses 23 to 25, this same sort of imagery being used. It looks like James may be talking about something quite similar to this when he describes those who know all the stuff the scriptures say, but whose lives don't seem to change very much as a result, as being like those who are looking in a mirror and see their reflection, but then walk away and forget what they looked like. They don't remember who they really are. Which suggests to me that perhaps it's quite possible to be looking even in the right mirror at all of the right stuff and yet miss or fail to remember what it is that we really need to see. And so the question is, when we find ourselves in front of this mirror, this mirror of the word of God that he holds up for us, we find ourselves mostly kind of combing our hair or guiding the paths of our razors or for you women doing whatever it is that women do in front of mirrors for such a long time? Or do you actually take the time to make eye contact? Do you notice who it really is that's looking back at you? What do you really see? And so this morning, taking our lead from James, I'd like to invite you to join me and taking a few moments to think about the scriptures, maybe in a way you haven't before. Perhaps as a book of mirrors. A place where you can look and see reflected not only a pretty clear picture of who you are, but of who God is as well. A place where we might find ourselves reflected in both sobering and very hopeful kinds of ways. At least if we don't get too preoccupied with tweezing an eyebrow or getting that stubborn bit of hair in place. And interestingly enough, as we do so, one of the first things we notice as we start at the very beginning, back in Genesis 1 and 2, is that we're reminded that a huge part of who we are are beings who are created to, in some way, reflect the image of God. People created in the image of God. However, what we also see when we look there is that it doesn't take very long before we see that reflection and that image being distorted in unfortunate ways. Genesis 3 describes how Adam and Eve, with a little bit of help from the serpent, we know the story, moved away from a way of life that was all about making genuine eye contact with themselves and with the Creator, to one that was all about wanting to hide from God's gaze and an unwillingness to really look into each other's eyes anymore as well. 
The story goes on to show us that when we start making real eye contact, it's also much easier for us to start assigning blame. And that happens in dramatic ways in the story, not only for each other, but for God too. And so because we're afraid and because somehow we think it feels safer, we turn our gaze to other stuff. We hide. And so when we hear God coming into the garden in the cool of the day and calling out to Adam, where are you? It's not because God doesn't know where they are, but because they had forgotten who they really were and in the process, who God was as well. Well, you know how it goes. From there, God goes on to describe the way that sin that had entered their world now would now distort their relationship with each other and to something God had never intended it to be. How they would come to experience work in a way that God had never intended them to experience. How the joyful experience of welcoming new life into the world would now be an experience that would be mixed with pain. And how even the created world around them, which was much more tied to their choices than they ever imagined it could be, would also be impacted in dramatic and tragic ways. But as we read the story, we see there's also good news. There's the promise of a coming redeemer, someone who would restore things, someone who would set things back to the way that they were intended to be. And from there, as that story continues to unfold throughout the rest of the scriptures, we find God repeatedly holding this mirror back up again, inviting us to look. But as that same story also shows, what we wind up focusing on when God does this oftentimes is not what God most wants us to see. And so as we read, we find that in place of their attempt to cover their sense of guilt with clothes that they fashioned out of fig leaves, God invites them to look more carefully, to realize that what they were doing was not adequate to cover what they felt most exposed about and provides them with something that only he could supply. He gives them a different kind of clothing that came in a way that foreshadowed what it would cost God to really provide that. Then we move on in chapter 4 in a story that you also know well, the story of Cain and Abel. And again, we see this contrast between what we often see and what God most wants us to see surfacing once again. As we look at the story, even though the text does not explicitly tell us why God looked more favorably on one offering than another, when we see what's happening here in light of the story in the garden, we can get some pretty clear clues as to what's going on. Abel, some have suggested, as someone who watches over flocks all day long, who takes care of sheep, may well have developed through all of that an awareness that aside from all of the effort that goes into herding sheep, that their life and his life and the life in the world around him, everything that he cared for, came to him largely as a gift, something to be received, something to be shared. And so when Abel comes before God in worship, the lamb he brings is not something he sees as his that he's now giving back to God, but rather is an acknowledgement that everything he enjoys is something that belongs to God already that he has shared with him. He sees the world as full of resources that are there to be gratefully shared more than they are to be owned. And then we see Cain. 
Some have suggested that maybe, despite the fact that watching things grow can also be a source of deep appreciation for the gift of life that God gives and for the, the mystery of life as it springs up from the earth, that somehow in the process of working the soil, Cain may have developed a slightly different perspective. I don't know, maybe it's because gardeners often get the idea that uh, because where they get to decide where and how much of any one thing to plant, that they have more control than they actually do. Or maybe it's because gardens often have fences, you know, which are designed to keep other things out and to signal to other people that what's inside is yours and not somebody else's. Maybe it was a number of other factors as well. I don't know. But whatever it was, we see that when Cain brought his offering of what he had grown, it may have been more with a sense that he was giving something that was his to God than acknowledging that God had shared everything that was his with Cain, which is something really very different than what Abel experienced. Now, I don't know, you could probably develop similar attitudes about herding sheep. And, of course, others have pointed out that there are other things going on in the story here, too. You know, there's a parallel between what Cain brings and the fig leaves that Adam and Eve cover themselves with and Abel's offering and the covering of skins that God provided, which may prefigure the sacrifice of Jesus. But however you want to look at the story and parse out those pieces, Cain seems to have lost sight of the realization that life is a gift to be celebrated and shared not something that we earn through our own efforts. And that living in that awareness has a huge role in what defines us. And so as this particular reflection in the mirror becomes distorted, we see what happens. Abel's image no longer looks like that of a brother, but perhaps it's that of a competitor, a threat not even that of a neighbor, but becomes that of an enemy. And you know the way the story goes. It results in tragedy. A sad reflection of what happens when what we allow to define us is not what God most wants us to see. And then as we continue on through the scriptures, we see this over and over again as God holds up a mirror and invites us to look but not just to look, but to also see, to make eye contact, both with him and with each other, and maybe in our most honest moments with ourselves. We see God inviting Abraham to join him on this great journey to a new land. He's going to become the father of a new people, a people that would fill the earth, who would understand the love and grace of God in ways that people had not understood it before. Not so they could live in isolation from everybody else, but so that all the world through them could be blessed. And you know, the interesting thing is about Abraham's story, when we look at it, is that we actually know very little about what Abraham believed. Genesis gives us no set of fundamental doctrinal beliefs, nothing to define Abraham or any of his descendants. We don't have any long list of doctrinal stuff here. But what we do see reflected is a life that is lived in response to God's graciousness a life that reflects that image that God was trying to transmit to his people and an identity that is shaped by how he related to God and those in the world around him. We see who Abraham was. 
Well, as we read on, though, we find other examples. We find God using Moses to lead the people out of Egypt. And while this is a group of people for whom we have a lot of specific information about what they believed and how they worshipped, the rules and the regulations were there in such a plentiful form that would fill volumes. We have more details about how they did this than probably anyone else. In spite of all of that, notice how Moses describes who it is that they really were. He does it here in Deuteronomy chapter 7. And just listen to how he puts it, beginning with verse 6. The Lord your God has chosen you out of all of the peoples on the face of the earth to be his people, his treasured possession. The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you and kept the oath he swore to your ancestors that he brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the land of slavery. Even for them, who they were were people saved by grace. And even though all the subsequent ups and downs in the story of the children of Israel are not always easy to follow or understand, all through the Old Testament we find Isaiah and other prophets like him continuing to remind us that God's desire for his people had remained unchanged, that they would remember who they were, that they would be shaped by God's graciousness so that they could be a blessing to the nations around them, the same blessing that Abraham had anticipated for his children. And by the time we get to the ministry of Jesus, It seems, however, that so many of those children for whom so much had been anticipated, they had now come to view their chosenness more as a matter of self-congratulation and a reason to separate from others than as a means to bless those around them. So much so that when Jesus showed up as the ultimate mirror in which people could see and understand not only who they were but who God really was, it came as quite a shock. It shook people literally in what they believed. For some, it was good news of great joy. For others, the reaction was not unlike that of Cain. It was reactive. It was defensive. It was unwilling to rethink anything that they had already decided must be the truth. They were ready to purge the synagogue of any dangerous new theology that Jesus might be trying to bring there, as if Jesus were a threat. After all, they had the truth. They had it figured out. They knew what the answers were. And yet, in Matthew 5, 17, we hear Jesus saying this. Don't think that I've come to abolish the law or the prophets. I've not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. I've come to show you the real depth of what these things mean. Or if we want to put it in terms of what we've been talking about this morning, I have not come to do away with the mirrors. I have not come to tell you to ignore what you see in them, but to tell you that you need to look more carefully. You need to look more deeply. You need to make eye contact. And when you do that, all of those other things you see reflected there will be put in their proper perspective. And then to make sure that they don't miss exactly what he means by that, he goes on and gives them some examples. You have heard it said, do not murder. 
But I say to you, don't even denigrate or belittle people. And then with each example he gives after that, each subsequent example as he continues, he invites his hearers to rethink, to re-examine many of the things that they already believed, to look more carefully, to go more deeply. Sometimes that meant setting aside old ways of saying and doing things because they had run their course and there was a better way to say it now. Things like an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. Other times it meant taking things to the next level, like in the example of murder that we just noticed that had to go much deeper than that, like in his mandate to love not just your friends, but to love your enemies as well. You see, as we look more carefully and as we learn to understand more and as we continue to grow, we learn to say things better. We learn to say things more accurately. Even the things that make us unique, we may come to understand in newer and richer ways, at least if we don't break eye contact, at least if we don't forget who we really are, which, in fact, in this case, in our case, is a sentiment that was very deeply embedded into the DNA of the people who founded this unique church that we're a part of. We need not to forget our roots. And yet this is also the very thing that got Jesus into so much trouble. Because he knew who he was, because he knew who we were, because he made eye contact with people and with the Father. He could say that doctrinally unorthodox good Samaritans actually fulfilled the law better than priests or Levites whose sense of unique identity caused them to walk by on the other side. He could violate all the religious norms and spend an afternoon with a Samaritan woman by a well, someone with a questionable reputation, and he probably shouldn't have been there by himself. At least it was outside. He could invite himself to lunch at the tax collector's house, and he could say to a pagan who sought him out for healing that his faith was greater than anything he'd seen in Israel. And to those who saw themselves as God's chosen remnant people of the day, he could say, you know what? I have other sheep, too, who are not of this fold. I'm here for them as well. You know, it can be quite challenging to be part of a group of people who have this sense of chosenness and remnantness just kind of built into their DNA. It's not a bad place to be. In fact, the truth is the conviction that God has called a person or a group for a particular purpose at a particular point in time is an awesome thing. It is a privilege that we have and that we share, and it's a good thing. Abraham and his descendants understood that sense of calling, a particular person at a particular time. Moses and the children of Israel understood that. The kingdom of Israel in the Old Testament was supposed to be that. The Christian church as a whole is that. And within this community of the followers of Jesus, that particular group of people with a unique sense of calling known as Seventh-day Adventists, who I believe have some great contributions to make and a work to do that I am excited to be a part of and for which I make no apologies at all. I am happy to be a part of that movement. But having said all of that, 
as the scriptures and the history of the Christian church show us over and over again. Unfortunate things happen when people confuse the uniqueness of their calling with their sense of core identity or when their sense of uniqueness takes on a life of its own. Sometimes becoming so defensive, sometimes even offensive at times, that opportunities to continue to learn and to grow get lost. Truth becomes something fixed and static that we protect rather than something that's alive and growing that continues to become deeper and richer as we learn more. And when uniqueness becomes more a matter of exclusion than another way to reach out and to serve people in the world around us. Which is why it is so important for us as a community of believers who have been entrusted with some amazing and I think just incredible unique contributions to make to our world. At this point in time, at this point in history, to not forget who we really are to not lose our way or when we look in the mirror that God holds up for us that we not forget that we need to make eye contact and see what it is that God most wants us to see you know speaking directly to this point on the night before his crucifixion Jesus had these words to say to his disciples it's in John 13 beginning with verse 34 A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. And then he says this, by this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Jesus says, you have seen who I am. This is who you are called to be at the core of who you are people created in the image of God. That is how they will know that you are my disciples. You know, because he understood both what it was like to live a life focused on all the wrong stuff and what it was like to finally get what Jesus was talking about, the Apostle Paul writes these words in 1 Corinthians 13. And I want to read what he writes in verses 8 to 13, which is usually the half of the chapter that we don't read. But listen to what he says. Love never fails. But where there are prophecies, they'll cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will all pass away. Anything that makes us unique is temporary. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when perfection comes, the imperfect disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became an adult, I put childish things behind me. Now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I will know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these The greatest of these is love. And Jesus said, By this, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples 
if you love one another. Jesus says, you have seen who I am. This is who you are called to be at the core of your being. People created in the image of God. That is what we are to be known for. That is our identity. And when everything else is said and done, however unique we may be, and there are some great things about our uniqueness, that's who I want to be. That's what I want to be known for. Thank you, Ken. Um, the idea of being loved as I am loved um, really hits home for me. I really appreciated the uh, um, the children's story. Actually, uh, thinking of God as as Abba or Papa um, and approaching Him from that childhood state. Um, being in a position of faith as a child where um, I'm very aware of my weakness, um, very aware of the fact that um, sin has crippled me permanently um, is, a, is a difficult position to be in. It's really scary. Um, but uh, God... God's love is all-encompassing for me, and I can approach him in that way. Um, there's a story of uh, David uh, taking in family members of, of uh, Saul and Jonathan, uh, this one character, Mephibosheth, who was a cripple, and um, David took him in almost as his own family. He said, you're going to eat at my table, and I'm going to give you uh, what belonged to my friend Jonathan. And I look at that picture of God loving me so thoroughly, regardless of whether I have anything to bring. And uh, I hope that you see that in this. Wounded and forsaken, I was shattered by the fall. Broken and forgotten, feeling lost and all alone. Summoned by the King into the Master's courts. Lifted by the Savior and cradled in His arms. And carried to the table Seated where I don't belong And carried to the table Swept away by His love brokenness anymore when I'm seated at the table of the Lord I'm carried to the table the table of the Lord fighting thoughts of fear 
Wondering why he's called my name Am I good enough to share this cup? The world has left me lame And even in my weakness The Savior called my name In his holy presence I am healed and unashamed I'm carried to the table Seated where I don't belong Carried to the table Swept away by His love And I don't see my brokenness anymore When I'm seated at the table of the Lord and carried to the table, the table of the Lord. You carried me, my God. You carried me. You carried me, my God. You carried me. grateful for yet one more picture this morning of you gathering us up in your arms and carrying us to the table out of your graciousness and for the opportunity we have to share all that you have provided we're grateful that we don't have to hoard what is there at the table for ourselves but that there are plenty of people gathered around us to share to benefit from to rejoice in your grace with we pray that you would give us lives that live that, that reflect that, that help us to see not only who we are as people that you have loved, but also who you see us to be as people who are capable of loving and sharing with those around us. That we might be that people this morning is what we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs> 